Welcome to the Romanian Dispatch, the podcast that accompanies the weekly newsletter with the latest news on Romania, from politics to pop culture and from film to finance. In the podcast, we invite guests to discuss developments behind the headlines. If you want to listen to earlier episodes of the podcast, read previous issues of the newsletter, or subscribe to our newsletter, please go to our website, romaniandispatch.media. From there, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. My name is Frank Kelbers, and today I speak with Thomas Carriters, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. Mr. Carriters is an authority on international democracy assistance, human rights and rule of law, and good governance and civil society. One of Dr. Carriters' first books was on international assistance to the transition in Romania, which was published in 1996. Today, we will speak about the impact of 30 years of democracy assistance in post-communist Europe, the pitfalls of this international assistance, and about Mr. Carriter's love for Romania. So the first hypothesis is that, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the uh, effects, the impact uh, of, of democracy assistance is, is not very tangible and very much dependent on political uh, developments, but uh, it does generally create a, a civil society, but primarily organizations and individuals that promote democracy, the rule of law, and, and human rights. Well, I think that's an accurate hypothesis. I think probably the greatest value of these programs is in their ability to change individuals' sense of empowerment and sense of understanding of politics and those individuals, whether they're in civil society or in some cases within government institutions are able to do better things as a result. It's hard to shape an institution per se, like the Romanian parliament or something, because it's made up of a constantly changing cast of characters and you know is governed by the political ambitions and interests and aspirations of all kinds of people, whereas changing individual minds and then lives is easier in a sense. It's just harder to point to how that uh, accumulates and sort of aggregates in terms of specific effects. So that's been one of the dilemmas of democracy assistance is how to show that it is having some positive effects when its main effect is quite dispersed in that sense. Yeah. Could you could you use as one indicator, say, if you, if, if you look at the longevity of organizations? Um... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly trace effects on civil society groups, which, you know, many of which have, owe a fundamental debt to support from external sources, either because of just sheer financing or training of people or just access to information and ideas about what to do and such. It's fairly clear that the civil society sector in Eastern Europe wouldn't be like it is today without all of that external support. It would still exist, you know, but there's no question the external support expanded it and empowered it in various ways. You know, in your, in your uh, 1996 uh, book on, on Romania, you, you already indicated that, yeah, it's very hard. It's much harder to reform institutions. Uh, you just mentioned mm-hmm. Parliament. Um, have you found over the years that there are some mm-hmm. tricks, if you will, um, yeah. to to try to nudge some of these institutions? Mm-hmm. For example, 
um, say the judiciary, or mm -hmm. uh, in the case of Romania, uh, sorry, uh, Ukraine, they have a, an anti-corruption court. Um, are, are there some ways that you found uh, mm -hmm. in your research? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, institutional change is hard because you can invest a lot in an anti-corruption commission for years, um, and then a new government can come along and undercut or disband the commission for their own political reasons and all the effort you put into it. I was just talking with somebody yesterday who worked in Indonesia for years on an externally funded anti-corruption commission training project and did all kinds of good work. And then the government decided to undercut the commission and basically ruin it. And there was nothing they could do to stop that kind of, you know, all of the work that they had done was kind of went down the drain. Um, so that's, you know, that's just a risk with institutions. Now, the work didn't really go down the drain in the sense that probably all the people who got the training still have it in their minds. And even though that commission doesn't exist, those people experienced better ways to do things. And maybe when they go do something else, they'll take those ideas with them. So, you know, it's hard to change an institution, but not so hard to change an individual. And ultimately institutions are made of individuals. And so, so you know, it's, it's, it's um, but there are some institutions that have persistent habits like parliaments and parties because of their interests and the power dynamics that make them especially resistant to change. So when we came in as outsiders to Eastern Europe and said your party should have characteristics like being less personalistic or being less leader driven or less corrupt, we were swimming against pretty stiff waters <clears throat> um, that make parties. There were a lot of reasons why they were like that. And so we were taking on some institutional dynamics that were pretty stubborn. So how do you, there isn't really a trick for institutional change except to create around it <clears throat> a larger context in which to operate, which constrains in various ways. So the Romanian parliament hasn't changed very much because of parliamentary training. But it has changed somewhat because of anti-corruption organizations that have forced it to have greater transparency in its operations. And so I think early on we may have made a mistake too much as a community to think that institution building was just focused on the institutions rather than the context in which they're rooted. And what really changes some institutions is more the context than the actual training of the institution itself. Yeah, the change comes over time by gradually infusing people. My second hypothesis in terms of you know, democracy systems in, in, in general um, is that, that in a way, and especially the last, say, 10 years, is, is, can, be, can serve as kind of a buffer uh, against shrinking civic space, uh, assuming that countries don't have you know, a foreign NGO law uh, that, that uh, prohibits funding, you know, NGOs accepting funding from, from abroad. Uh, would you agree with, with that? Do you, do you think that, uh, and I'm particularly looking mm -hmm. at Central Asia, that some countries where, where assistance uh, has been, been reduced, uh, which goes for most of, of, of Eastern Europe mm -hmm. and, and Central Asia, that, they actually, that actually played in the hands of, of those that have been trying to shrink civil space, civic space? You know, a determined government, a government that really wants to shrink civic space, the only thing that's going to stop it is either a sense of domestic political costs in doing so or external political costs in doing so. 
And so in both cases, when you back away from civil society assistance, you're probably reducing those calls because you're showing less of a commitment and therefore the government judges that you're not gonna care so much if they do this, you the outsider. And then secondly, there are gonna be, there's gonna be a weaker domain within the country to be closed down or to be punished in various ways. Now you could argue that, it's an overstated argument, but some people would argue, well, the foreign assistance to the NGOs partly triggered the closing civic space phenomenon because it aggravated government's feeling that outsiders were meddling in their politics. But I think most of them would have done it anyways and would have had an easier time doing it if the foreigners weren't around supporting them. So they're really against the principle of independent civil society. They're not, they use the foreign angle largely as a justification, but what they're really interested in is stamping out any independent sources of power. Um, so I don't buy the argument that we we provoked them kind of by by giving such assistance. There are cases where maybe the assistance was heavy handed in certain ways or ill-directed. Um, but in general, that's not why civic space is closing. So <clears throat> um, yes, I think, you know, one part of the approach to pushing back against closing civic space is to keep supporting civic space, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at the at the flip side, uh, I mean, there's there's also uh, a tendencies of of NGOs to to become too dependent on on foreign funding, uh, mm-hmm. which is a danger both in terms of when governments push back against you know, foreign uh, funding, but also of course when funding dries up uh, and they, they become too reliant, uh, and and sometimes even. Uh, NGOs uh, can be perceived, you know, in countries as as being, you know, funded from abroad and and therefore coming with a, a certain agenda as, as well. What, what what is your what, what are uh, I know you've written about shrinking uh, civil space quite extensively. Um, have you looked at this? I guess the dilemma in a way of organizations that are becoming too dependent on foreign mm-hmm. foreign assistance yeah. and and what 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 we some of the right. solutions. Yeah, I think there was a, you know, it's been a slow rolling realization in the donor community starting in the late 1990s that they had better be careful about creating this kind of dependence syndrome. But it's taken them a long while to really develop alternatives because it isn't obvious what you do instead. You know, so they've tried to put greater emphasis on local rootedness, local constituency building of such organizations. They've tried to emphasize efforts to help stimulate domestic philanthropy within countries um, in different ways. They've tried to um, kind of create, in some cases, local foundations and do pass-through assistance where they create a local foundation, which then gives away money. And so it's, it's more flexible and less of the kind of the big external grants instead of smaller, more flexible grants internally. And, Things like that. But, you know, the unpleasant truth is that in a country like Cambodia or Moldova or even Romania, there aren't that many sources of domestic support for independent civic groups, mm-hmm. both because they're still relatively poorer countries um, and because of the traditions of centralization of power and public skepticism and various other things. So it's not like there's some easy alternative um, that, that has, you know, is just uh, outside our grasp that we haven't quite reached for. 
um, the truth is that we're, we have an aspiration for countries to be democratic in ways that require means of support that they don't really have yet. So there's a bit of a, not contradiction, but there's a big challenge in that we, vis we envisage developing democracies with, quote, vibrant civil societies, but we don't really know how that's going to work in a number of places. Um, but there's a lot of local volunteerism now. It's just not often around issues like governmental transparency or monitoring elections. The volunteerism is more charitable. It's very localistic. And, but even societies that were as atomized and repressed as Romania in the 1970s and 80s have sort of come through this. And there's, you know, there are signs of volunteerism and civic engagement and activism on many fronts. So it's, you know, even despite all the setbacks in Eastern Europe with democracy, they have made significant progress in the last 30 years away from being what they were in the 1980s. You are listening to the Romanian Dispatch podcast. Our guest is democracy expert Thomas Characters. You can find our podcast and weekly newsletter at RomanianDispatch.media. In political science, there's this, this um, kind of theory about the, the, the level of GDP uh, and linking that with democratization. Yeah. Uh, I think Turkey just made that threshold uh, a few years right. ago. Do, do you, have you done any quantitative uh, mm -hmm. research around this? And because obviously a lot of philanthropy um, uh, depends on the middle class, you know, on, on, on a... Right. On a and uh, so here yeah, in Romania, you see a lot of volunteering. Uh, there's quite a bit happening in corporate social responsibility. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, most of it is very, it's not, it's not political. Um, not election monitoring or... Um, yeah. And, um, but, but with incomes, you know, with GDP going up and GDP per capita increasing, uh, would you expect uh, a philanthropy mm -hmm. sector to develop? to fund, get local funding for NGOs, civil society organizations? And what would yes. be sort of a threshold for that? Uh, I mean, right, there isn't, really a, there isn't really a sharp threshold because you can have a country as rich as Japan that doesn't have much, a tradition, much of a tradition of that kind of giving. Or you can have a much poorer country, you know, like, I don't know, Peru, uh, that does have a tradition of a lot of that and so it isn't a straight line relationship. You can be fairly wealthy and not have a lot of independence, civil society support coming from businesses and wealthy individuals. Um, so you can't just say the richer will get, the better off our civil society will be. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Okay. You know, it depends more on traditions of how much value the country puts on independent civic organizing and how much power concentration. You can have some democracies like Japan that have highly concentrated political sectors that are, you know, very little independent civil society. And so that's really the question kind of. Um, I mean, the one fortunate thing is most newer democracies like in Central and Eastern Europe, because that power concentration was somewhat broken up by the process of the late 1980s, early 1990s, they're not like Japan. They don't have the kind of coherence of party structures and coherence of the state the way that Japan or some other kinds of Asian democracies have. 
so it's not too much of a danger. There's, they're, they're fairly heterogeneous democracies, the Eastern European democracies, somewhat, not completely. But, uh, so, but these relationships between wealth and democratization are their guidelines and they're often somewhat true, but not, you know, Jaworski, the big progenitor of all of this work in the 1990s, you know, had the magic threshold of at the time $6,000 per capita. It's gone over time, but then Hungary, relatively rich new democracy, you know, in the last 15 years has moved back substantially, kind of breaking his rule about no, he used to say no democracy with over $6,000 per capita income has ever gone backward. Well, now, guess what? Now we have. Um, and so, you know, it's, he might have said it wasn't really consolidated in the first place, but then that becomes a bit logical. Um, so, so their guidelines are their, their helpful ways of thinking about things. And then you have countries like <clears throat> China that have crossed that threshold and have not shown any sign of democratizing. People used to say China's on the verge of that threshold. It's actually exceeded that threshold now but it's not there yet, obviously, in terms of democratization. Uh, my last question, looking at the clock. Um, back, back to Romania. So, so you wrote- Yeah, I'm curious to talk about Romania a little bit. You know, something about the country that always kind of pulled me in. I always felt mm. very drawn to Romanians. I, there's something heartfelt about uh, the Romanian way of uh, living yeah. that, uh, always kind of got under my skin kind of and I studied Romanian some when I was doing that book ah, so that I could yeah. I could do the interviews I did the yeah. interviews in Romanian wow, wow. very impressive yeah. Yeah. I came back about three years ago just to interview some people to think about what had changed and what had not changed just a little uh -huh. bit of my and what can you, in, in a nutshell what, what, what were the big yeah. changes and what 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 would stay the same yeah I mean what was disappointing was the persistence of, of opaque forms of power, the persistence of the fear of the sort of security establishment. And the, you know, that was disappointing how difficult it was to rationalize the internal security sector in Romania. And the continued, the migration of the securitate into the business sector and the corruption of, of, of the business sector by elements in the intelligence services was disappointing, kind of, or is a huge problem in Romania. So that was one big kind of, when we look back on it, we think, wow, we had no idea that was going to be so difficult. I think another one which I think Western assistance didn't do well was the media sector and the commercialization of the media sector and how damaging uh, that has been for media with integrity in Romania. It's, you know, most media is not very good in electronic media, television, and radio um, in terms of serving any public interest. And I think there was a push towards deregulation of the media and various things looking back on it again, especially given the way the business sector works, um, didn't turn out very well. Not, quote, our fault, but I don't think. Western assistance did very much in retrospect to help counter the bad elements of that process. I think, you know, the political party sector in general, that's not particular to Romania, proved a lot more resistant to reform than people might have hoped, you know, uh, particularly on the center left, but on both sides of the spectrum. Um, the center left never really rationalized in the way that people hoped it might and became a cleaner center left and such. Um, 
So, you know, they're big failings. Um, at the same time, and in general, the idea that a number of Europeans had back in the 90s that, you know, EU integration was an inexorable process of rationalization of, of power and economic structures was, was an illusion. You can be a member of the EU and get away with murder on all kinds of things, you know, <laughs> so to speak. And so that, that was a, a myth. And I remember being in many arguments with German colleagues. Once they're in the EU, it'll all get fixed. And I said, it's not how life works. You, you know, I know how the EU works. Look at Greece. I mean, Greece has all kinds of problems and corruption and other things, being an EU member for decades and decades. So those were four big areas that <clears throat> problematic. On the other hand, the general raising of the level of consciousness of Romanians about, you know, politics and certain political values has been pretty good. You know, Romania is alive, you know, as a country, it's not dead inside, you know, it's, it's, there's energy and there are ideas and there are people trying to do things and there are decent initiatives. And so, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's alive, you know, there are other places like Central Asia that are not, you know, that, that are just squished kind of, you know, just the power structures were too strong and, it, they, you know, they managed to just suppress the whole society in a way that, that Romania. So Romania has huge problems, but it also is not an authoritarian state. You know, that's that's squeezing the life out of out of the society, kind of. So it's muddling along. You know, um, is is sort of where it is. And and things like the anti-corruption movement in Romania are impressive. You know, that a lot of people. You are listening to the Romanian Dispatch podcast. Our guest is democracy expert Thomas Characters. You can find our podcast and weekly newsletter at Romaniandispatch.media. I'm a kind of a realist, Frank. You know, I don't expect a rose garden. You know, when you do this kind of stuff, you try to do some. And, you know, and I look at the problems we have in the United States, Great Britain, and other places, is it's Democratic decay can happen anytime, anywhere, you know, I mean, yeah, there's noxious political forces ready to come to the fore. And, you know, three days ago in Washington, there were 600 far right guys walking around with guns, stabbing people on the streets of Washington, marauding around the city. That's not so good. You know, or, I mean, you know, it's like, guess what? Well, that's the capital of the richest democracy in the world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a bit of realism here about, you know, that. So. So it's not shiny optimism, but I felt like, I mean, Bucharest, I would say just personally that it's a, there's something about this city that, that tugs at my heart because it's kind of like, a, it's slightly decaying, you know, it's, there's so many buildings that are decaying in Bucharest. And it's a, to me, the city has a certain grandeur, a failed grandeur that's, that's, that's heart-rending kind of. And I, I worry about the city because I don't think it's, I don't know if it's going to make it like in 50 years, sort of the, the basic infrastructure of the city and the buildings and everything. There's just too many buildings. As I walked around the city, I was just amazed how many buildings are in trouble, kind of, you know, and the ownership structures are unclear. Right. That, that, that worries me kind of, you know, it's just sort of sad because there's something to me, I always loved the city. I always felt it was, it was something about it that's really... Yeah. Great, <clears throat> kind of, and I, I was disturbed, maybe because I started, I met some woman, I think she's British Romanian, so who works a lot on preservation of the city, and she took me around and showed me things, and I, I was, you know, I felt like 
if I were a billionaire, I might try to fix up Bucharest, you know, and sort of give some money to some kind of fund that would invest in buildings and preserve things. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Touch. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, okay. okay, thank you. Great. Bye bye. Yeah. You listen to the Romanian Dispatch. You can subscribe to the podcast and to our weekly newsletter at romaniandispatch.media.